We are just about done with our study in evangelism. So this summer we've been taking time as a church to consider what it means for us to share the gospel. Um, And so this morning, uh, if you're here and you wouldn't necessarily profess faith in Christ, um, you're here because someone invited you or you're curious about who Jesus is, um, for whatever reason you're here, but you're, you're not there as far as belief and faith, uh, this message, I hope, what, what you hear is our heart for you. Um, while we're, we're sort of talking in terms of those of us who believe and what does that mean for us to communicate our faith with others, uh, I hope you hear that our heart and our desire is that you would know Jesus, not in a manipulative, forceful kind of, we're going to stand over you and condemn you, but in a way that says, hey, we love you. We want you to know Christ, and we want you to understand what Christ did to save you from your sin and what he has done in history to save us all from this broken, messed up, uh, wonderful life that we live, but at the same time that we need redemption. And so what we're going to talk about this morning is not just sharing the gospel, but how we share the gospel. What does it look like to communicate the truths of who Jesus is? Because how we talk about the gospel matters. And for those of you that profess faith in Christ, I'm not just saying that we get the facts right. As important as that is, we want to preach the true gospel. It's more than just getting the facts right. Is the way that we talk about the gospels, the way that we talk about Jesus Christ, does it reflect, does the tone, does the, the, the heart posture, does it reflect the nature of the message? Is the way that we communicate the gospel to people, do we sort of leave them in a position that they must respond, whether positive or negatively, that accurately reflects the nature of the message? See, if I'm, if I'm talking about the Grand Canyon, there, there's one way I can talk about the Grand Canyon. Look, I can tell you facts. I can tell you that it is 277 miles long, 18 miles wide, and over a mile deep. I can communicate those facts to you, and you can get a sense of, okay, cool, wow, that's amazing. I can even show you a picture. Or I can communicate to you about the Grand Canyon the way famed travel writer Bill Bryson does. This is what he writes about his experience of the Grand Canyon. Nothing prepares you for the Grand Canyon. No matter how many times you read about it or see it, pictured, it still takes your breath away. Your mind, unable to deal with anything on this scale, just shuts down. And for many long moments, you are a human vacuum without speech or breath. But just, but just a deep, inexpressible awe that anything on this earth could be so vast, so beautiful, so silent. The scale of the Grand Canyon is almost beyond comprehension. You could set the Empire State Building down in it, and it'd still be thousands of feet above it. Indeed, you could set the whole of Manhattan down inside it, and you would be still so high above it that buses would be like ants, and people would be invisible, and not a sound would reach you. The thing that gets you, that gets everyone, is the silence. The Grand Canyon just swallows sound. The sense of space and emptiness is overwhelming. Nothing happens out there. Down below you on the canyon floor, far, far away, is the thing that carved it, the Colorado River. It is 300 feet wide, but from the canyon's lip, it looks thin and insignificant. It looks like an old shoelace. That's communicating size. That's communicating about the Grand Canyon that brings you into an experience with it, that makes you feel the space, that starts to paint a picture of what this means that such a place exists on planet Earth. 
And then if you were to go there, this is the implications of such size of 277 miles long and 18 miles wide and over a mile deep. Bryson is communicating why this matters, what effect this has, what, what it means that something like this exists. And so when we talk about the gospel, are we talking about it in such a way that people hear and really feel from us that it matters that Jesus actually lived and died and was resurrected and now sits at the right hand of the Father? Do they, they get a sense of that, that? That changes things. That matters. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not just talking about show some emotion. I mean, in some way, I'm going to say that a little bit later. I'm not, I'm not just talking about, hey, when we present the gospel, we, we just sort of do this in a very scientific, cold, detached um, just, just by the facts manner. I, that's not what I'm getting at. I'm more getting at is, is our proclamation of the gospel small and reduced and boxed in and overly simplified and watered down? Have, have we shrunk the implication of the gospel in the way that we talk about it? Or are we speaking of the gospel in such a way that its beauty and its power and its truth create a response, provoke a response one way or another, that when we talk about the gospel with others, they have to leave that conversation considering, hey, if that's true, that means something. I might not believe that it is true, but if it is true, that means something. And really, if we're going to communicate the gospel in that way, we first have to be gripped by its truth. We have to feel it. We have to understand it. We have to experience its power in our life. And so I want to look at this passage from Isaiah 52 as a way for us to understand how we talk about the gospel and the ways that gospel can grip us and the truths of it that speak more than just to the cold facts. So here here are three categories that we're going to consider this morning about talking about the gospel. One is proclamation, two is celebration, and three, invitation. So I want to set a little bit of context of, of Isaiah 52, 7 through 10, as we begin talking about proclamation. So the beginning of this chapter in verses 1 through 6, the Lord has told Israel, I am going to redeem you from Assyria. So at the, historically, Israel is in captivity. Israel, Assyria has come in and they're in exile. And the Lord is declaring to them, hey, I'm going to save you. I'm going to redeem you out of this exile and this slavery. And Isaiah hears this word from the Lord and he begins to respond to the news of this salvation in verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Now this phrase, bring good news or proclaims good news. In the Greek, this is where we get our word evangelize. You, you angelizo, meaning good, the you, and then angelizo, meaning to announce news. So our word evangelism is sort of Greek, smash this whole phrase into one word, and then we transliterate it into English, and we get our word evangelize. So to evangelize literally means to proclaim good news. But there's a little bit more about the background of this phrase that we need to understand, because this isn't just sort of generic good news, like good news that hey, I got a new car, or I passed a test, or the Cubs won the World Series, as good news as that was last year. This is a specific type of good news. And the reference to someone's feet here are important. So the one bringing, in in, in this image of one bringing good news, is an image of one who has run a great distance to declare the good news of victory. 
See, in the ancient world, when there was a great battle that was won, a very important battle, the, the victorious army would send a runner or someone on horseback back to the city or back to the people who were anxiously waiting, hey, did we win? And this runner would come and announce the good news of victory. So those of you crazy people who like to run marathons, do you, do you know the story of where the marathon came from? So, so the marathon as a race was instituted at the Olympics in 1896. And the story behind that is as they were bringing the Olympics back to the modern era, they wanted to have this race to sort of commemorate the, the great past of Greece. And so in 490 BC, there was this battle at Marathon between the, the Greeks and the Persians. The Persian Empire was trying to invade Greece. And so the Athenians we're fighting back against the Persians, and they, they win this battle, a marathon that essentially keeps Persia from overtaking Greece. And it was this great victory. And so Pheidippides runs the 26.1 miles from Marathon back to Athens to declare and tell the Athenians, hey, we won. Persia is not going to invade. The empire is not going to overtake us. And then he dropped dead. So that should say something to you guys that love to run marathons. The original marathon runner died after he ran that race. Just saying. But this is what Pheidippides was doing. His feet were rushing to bring good news of victory, of peace. Hey, we're not going to be enslaved by the Persians. We're free. We, we, we won. Great victory. And, and Isaiah is pulling on this imagery to talk about the victory that God is going to accomplish. How beautiful are those who come and evangelize, who declare the good news of victory. How beautiful are those who proclaim, God has defeated our enemies. Where you were destitute and oppressed and enslaved, God has come and set you free. Our God reigns. And the, this beautiful picture of someone coming to publish salvation, to evangelize, is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul quotes this exact line in Romans 10, 15, that those who publish this good news, those who proclaim this good news of Jesus Christ are talking about this great victory of salvation that God has won for his people. And so let me ask those of us who profess faith in Christ, when we talk about the facts of the gospel, that Jesus lived, that Jesus died, that he was buried, that he was resurrected, then he has ascended, do we proclaim it as good news of victory? God putting your sin in mind on Christ and crushing him and punishing him for us. This won a great victory for us. And so do we use the language of Colossians 2, 13 and 14? And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of the debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The sin you have lived in, the rebellion you have perpetuated, the guilt that rightly hangs over you, God has defeated it. The punishment that you and I deserve because of our sin, Christ nailed that punishment to his cross and defeated it for us. There has been a great victory that has been won for us through Jesus Christ. And when we share the gospel with others, do they hear that victory in how we talk about the gospel? Now, as we openly talk about our struggles and our sins and our weaknesses, as we considered last week, 
as we talk about the pain that we face in this life? Do we share our hope in the victory Christ has won for us, even in the midst of our struggles? And so do we use the language of Romans 7? So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, even evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Anybody ever been there? I want to do good, but it seems like sin is right there every time I want to do good. In the midst of this struggle, in the midst of this wrestle, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then Paul so gloriously says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. A great victory has been won in the midst of your struggle with sin, in the midst of the wrestle, in the midst of the imperfection and the pain. Jesus Christ has won. And the last word in your life is victory. It's freedom. And so when you share the gospel with those, your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors, when you talk about your struggles, do they hear that your hope is in the victory Christ has accomplished for you? Do they hear that through Jesus Christ you can be set free from sin and that he is renewing you and will fully renew you? Do they hear this victory and are sharing the gospel? As we talk about the pain of death, the pain of sickness and brokenness in our bodies, the pain of mental illness and anxiety, when we share the gospel, do they hear in in our words 1 Corinthians 15, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, we will suffer now. Yes, our bodies break down. Yes, we're weak now. But through Jesus Christ, death does not get the final word. Brokenness, frailty, mental illness, all of those things that harm and hurt you now do not get the last word because through Jesus Christ, a victory has been won. And so do our friends and our family members and our neighbors and our coworkers hear of this victory as we talk about the gospel. When we talk about evil in this world, the evil of abuse and economic and political oppression, and murder, and war, and the evil of racism and white supremacy that seem to be splattered all over the news? Do we use the language of Colossians 2.15? He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Yes, it seems like evil is just running rampant, but Christ has defeated all of that. On the cross, he put them to open shame saying, take your best shot. And they did. But he rose in victory and saying, your best shot doesn't win. And the final word is victory over every evil, every oppression, every wickedness that men might want to inflict. And so as we talk about these issues with our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers, do they hear us talk about the victory that Christ has accomplished? You see, we all desire victory of some sort. Victory over our limitations and brokenness in our physical body. Victory over our bad habits and our sins. Victory over loneliness. Victory over financial difficulties. Victory over the evil and oppression that seems to be perpetuating in our world. We want victory. Our hearts cry out for victory. We feel that need. 
The question is, where are we going to find it? Where do we look for it? Where are our friends and our family and our coworkers and our neighbors looking for that victory? And are we declaring that victory has been won through Jesus Christ? Now look, just because we frame it this way doesn't necessarily mean everybody's going to run to it and accept it. We're still rebellious in our hearts. This doesn't guarantee people's belief, but this is what it does. It holds the gospel out for us and for others, and it says, hey, look, this means something. You you can accept this and believe this, or you can reject it, but you can't walk away indifferent because this says something about history. This says something about the nature of our world. And so are we holding out this victory for people and saying, what are you going to do with this victory? I'm declaring to you what Jesus Christ has done. What are you going to do with that? How do you fit that into your framework? How do you wrestle through that when you think of your own desire to find victory? And I'm telling you about what Jesus has done. What are you going to do with that? And so our proclamation carries with it this message of victory. And so church, let's paint this victory in bright, beautiful, bold contrast to provoke response so for people to understand that Jesus lived and died and was resurrected means something. So it's not just proclamation, it's also celebration. Our proclamation of victory, properly understood, should provoke a response. And this is what Isaiah writes in 52, 8 and 9, in the midst of this news, this good news that has come, that the, the feet have come and brought this news of victory. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. How oh, rejoice, those that were destitute and enslaved. The Lord has come and saved you. Break out into song, break out into celebration, and as we recognize what Christ has done for us, does this not provoke celebration? When we recognize the extent of what we have been saved out of, the sin and the slavery and the brokenness, and the pain, and the wreck. And Christ came and got us and saved us because of his grace. Not because of anything we have done, not because of our goodness or our intellect, but because he loved us and came and saved us, and because he's a God who is merciful and full of grace. Does this not cause us to rejoice and celebrate? You see, great victory deserves great celebration. Man, I I remember a time, it's been longer than I want to admit, or back in the day when the Huskers used to win big victories, we'd get down to 72nd and dodge and go crazy. Some of you remember that? You know, dudes running around in their underwear, climbing light poles. I mean, it was crazy back in the day because it was a great victory. And so we would celebrate. Christianity is a faith of celebration. Christianity is a belief that God has done something so significant and so profound in history to save sinners like you and me, that we can't help but celebrate. Do you know that history ends with a celebration? Here's what Isaiah writes in Isaiah 25, 6 through 9. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. 
and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. A party, a celebration, good food, good drink. This is what the Lord has for us at the end of all of it, is party and celebration and rejoicing at what he has accomplished. And we will be there. And all the pain and all the suffering and all the reproach and everything that we went through in this life, the Lord will wipe away and usher in healing and restoration and redemption. And we will rejoice and celebrate at what he has done. And the good news for us is the salvation that will be fulfilled in that day and accomplished and completed is true for us to this, to right now. Like that salvation, that redemption, God has worked in us right now and is working out of us. And so we celebrate and we rejoice right now. In light of what's coming, we can celebrate and rejoice right now. And so when we share the gospel, when we talk about who Jesus is and what he has done, do our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers hear celebration? Do they experience that in us? Do do they get a sense of we rejoice out of what we have been saved from and the power of God at work in our lives right now? Yes, life is difficult. Yes, we suffer. Yes, we're still broken. Yes, we still sin. But our sense of what Jesus has done and is doing and will do is so much greater that we can't help but rejoice. And so do our friends hear this? Do they experience that? I mean, maybe we should throw block parties. And when people ask us, hey, why are you throwing the block party? You're saying, hey, I just want to celebrate what Jesus is doing. Is that a little too weird? Um, I mean, we climb light poles in our underwear because 18 to 20-year-olds won a football game. I mean, that's, that's kind of weird too, right? <laughs> but but I, I'm not saying we have to go throw parties, block parties. I mean, if you want to, go for it, hey. But are our friends experiencing that? Are as our family, as our coworkers, our neighbors experiencing this sense of celebration that we have? We don't have to be, you know, skipping down the street and super outgoing. I mean, celebrate according to your personality. But we all have this sense of what we know, what it means to celebrate something. And can people sense that in us? What does it look like for you to live with a sense of celebration? in the tone, in the nature of your life, in the tone, in the nature of the way you share the gospel. Now, we could also ask this question, what does celebration have to do with evangelism in some ways? I mean, because anyone can get excited and party and, and, and really celebrate. And, and sometimes we associate celebration, you know, food and drink and parties with sin, which is unfortunate. But, but what does is, what is celebration have to do with sharing the gospel and pointing people to Jesus, calling people out of their sin and to Christ? I mean, if, if you've ever read the, the parable that Jesus tells in Luke 14 and Matthew 22 of the great banquet where this king is going to throw this feast and he invites all of these people, hey, come celebrate, come have a party with me, and they say no. That, that's kind of odd. I mean, if, if, if you were invited to a great party when you knew they were going to have great food and great drink and it was going to be a great time, um, why turn that down? But, but if we think about the nature of celebration and, and what, what Jesus was pointing to, like what you celebrate reveals where your heart is. And so when we communicate the gospel through celebration, what we're doing is 
We're calling them out of sin and we're confronting where people have put their hope. What, what are the things that people have put their deepest expectation and hope and desire in? And so I'm not, I'm not just talking about, hey, love going to church more than watching football. I mean, I, I don't want to make it that superficial. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about something deeper here. When we celebrate the gospel, we're saying, look, I'm not the center of the universe. I am not the solution to the problem. I can't fix what's broken in me. That living for status and success and wealth and pleasure and sex are not the deepest sense of joy that I can experience. So when we celebrate, when we rejoice in the gospel, we're pointing away from ourselves into something greater, to something deeper, to something more profound. And that confronts people. Because by nature... We want to be the center of the universe. We want to be the solution. We want to fix things on our own terms. We want to live for ourselves and our own desires and our own rights. And so celebration in the gospel, having a party in the gospel means, hey, it's not about me anymore. It's not about me. It's not about what I have accomplished. It's not about my righteousness. It's not about my goodness. It's not about my ability. It's about something greater. And so celebration can confront people in some very profound ways. I mean, if you've ever been to a party and there's somebody there not enjoying it, somebody who refuses, no matter how much fun this is, I am not going to have fun at this party. Why is that? Because they're more caught up about themselves and what's going on in their own heart than they are about what's going on around them and getting caught up in something bigger than them. And so celebration confronts in so many different ways. And so don't be afraid that if you celebrate the gospel and talk about what Jesus has done, that somehow they're going to miss the message about sin and repentance. Oh, it'll hit them. It'll hit them hard. But it's going to hit them in a way that they have to confront in some deeper ways. And so let's celebrate the gospel well. Let's let, when we talk about Jesus, let's let others hear that his life and his death and his resurrection are worthy of celebration because of what he's accomplished. And then finally, invitation. With our proclamation and celebration also comes an invitation. So Isaiah says, writes in 52.10, The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. See, God has put on display for all the nations the power of his salvation. What Christ has done is not hidden, some hidden event tucked away for only a select few of people select few people to see. It was put on full display in history for, every, for people of every tribe and tongue and nation to see. And not only to see, but also to believe and experience. And so we don't keep this good news of victory. We don't keep this celebration to ourselves. We don't build a wall around it and say, nope, sorry, you can't come in. No, it's something we are constantly inviting people into because we want them to know Christ. We want them to experience the freedom and the victory that he has brought. And come and see this victory played out in my life. Come and see Christ forgiving a sinner like me and transforming me from someone who lived selfishly and lived for pleasure and success and status and sex to someone who has lived for, for something bigger, someone who has lived for the glory of another, who loves and serves. Come and see a community where people who should be divided by race and class and political belief are coming together and loving each other as brother and sister in Christ. 
Come and see where people are loved and served. And people lay down their lives for one another, not because they're great and they're awesome, but because of Jesus. Come and see a community where people are experiencing deep healing from pain and brokenness and being sinned against from others. Come and see what Christ is accomplishing through his death, his life, death, and resurrection. And so we are consistently wanting to invite others in, invite others into our life, invite others into our homes, invite others into gospel community, invite others to Sunday mornings, whatever it is that will get them to see the power of the gospel at work, to see the victory that Christ has accomplished and why that matters and how that is playing out. Oh, come experience a celebration that comes from the deepest part of a person's soul that has been set free by Jesus. Oh, so let's be an inviting people. Let's be an open people. There's an anecdotal story told about Thomas Jefferson. I don't know if it's true, but it's a, it's a cool story regardless, so you can insert anybody here. But, so the story tells of Jefferson when he was president on horseback with a group of people, and they're trying to cross a river that had overrun its banks. And so they, they have to go by horseback across, and they're struggling, and it's, it's just a, a really dangerous situation. And there's a, a guy standing on one side of the, the river watching this happen. And at one point, he looks up at Thomas Jefferson and says, hey, can I get a ride across? And immediately Jefferson's like, yeah, get on. So he gets on the horse, goes across. And when he gets off, the, the, the crew that's with Jefferson, they're immediately like, why would you ask the president of the United States to give you a ride? And he goes, oh, I had no idea he was the president. But, but here's why I asked him, because I looked around at you and you all had no written on your face. He had yes written on his face. So I asked him. And so, so what does it mean for us as a, a community to be so captured by what Christ has accomplished? To be so full of celebration that we have yes written on our face. Yeah, come into my home. Yes, come into my gospel community. Yes, come into my life. I'm inviting you into my life to experience community. Yes, come into I'll come with me on Sunday morning. Come, come, let me show you who Jesus is. Let me tell you about Jesus, who Jesus is. Come, let, let's, let me celebrate and you be a part of that celebration. What does it mean for us to have this openness, this sense of invitation? Pastor Paul talked about our hospitality a couple weeks ago. That's what this is. It's a sense of hospitality built on this deep sense of what Christ has done, this great news of victory, this deep sense of celebration, which transforms us and says, yes, come on in. You're invited. Come know Christ. And so church, as we talk about the gospel, yes, let's get the facts right. Let's talk about truth. But let people hear, let them feel, let them sense that victory that Christ has won and why that matters. Let them see and experience the celebration that we live out. And let them see on our face, yes, come Come know Jesus. Turn from your sin. Follow him. Experience grace. Experience healing. Experience salvation. And so may we be a church that proclaims, celebrates, and invites. Amen.